My name is Mark Bamuti Joseph. I am a poet. I'm a dad. I'm an educator. I am Camila Forbes. I am a storyteller, a director, a producer, a wife, a mother, a daughter, and the executive producer of the Apollo Theater. My name is Paolo Pristini. I'm a composer. I'm a mother, a wife, and a collaborator. For the Kennedy Center. For National Sawdust. For the Apollo Theater. This This is is Active Hope. Hello. Hey, my friends. Hello, hello. Hello, friends, (laughs) friends, friends. Mark and Paola, so good to see you. It's always so lovely to see y'all. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, today we are here to talk um, about some really exciting, futuristic, exciting, forward looking, forward thinking (laughs) (laughs) Uh, about futurism. And I'm, I'm really, you know, struck by this theme today. Um, I know we have some three exciting guests that we'll be listening to that you both have been in conversation with that I'm excited to bear witness to that conversation and be in dialogue with your brilliant minds. It's an interesting moment, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I feel like in a way, you know, we didn't know how we were timing these themes when we were doing it. And it feels right now that this is exactly mm-hmm. the moment to be talking about futurism. You know, the 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 cities that we live in, I, I don't know if you all feel this way, but everyone I think is right now, ha- this energy is bubbling in the city, you know, just waiting to kind of explode. And so it feels really like the perfect moment to, um, to be, to be not just looking at the future, but to be also looking back and to be saying, how can, you know, how can we really, mm. um, how can we really process and step in? Yeah. That's excellent, Paula. Uh, yeah. We're returning. When we when we mm. first started this enterprise, we were uh, just trying to figure out how to tread water in the present. And there was right. both this um, idea of like, we have to survive. We're walking across the sands. We have these creative impulses, not exactly sure what to do with them. If the transactional kind of format, the transactional paradigm isn't available to us. Um, now here we are nearly on the other side of, of yeah. that particular desert. And it's like, did we miss it? Was there an, mm. was there an opportunity to design the future? And we, I think we're, I mean, it's, it? it's, it's great that you're putting it mm. the way I think we're like in it mm. because I think, you know, when you think about the future, people love to think about technology and AI and we're going to hit some of those things. Mm. Um, but actually I was reading mm-hmm. um, a little bit from one of the guests that we have today and, you know, it, Futurism is all okay until we talk about social change, right? And then it's like right. all these divergent truths, all these divergent mm. realities, all mm. these diver- divergent mm. wishes, right? And so mm. that I think is like where we come mm. in, right? As artists and as cult- you know, as as responders to That's culture, right. as makers, how do we look at this and how do we thread this together uh, so that that impulse becomes the yeah. reason for technological innovation? You know, that's right. How are we transforming, transforming yeah. our now for tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to play a clip by mm. Ash Kusha, a British-Iranian multidisciplinary artist, futurist, innovator, and technology entrepreneur. He's using computer software such as AI and VR in his work. This tune is called Dive.
Wow, Ash Kusha. Wow, extraordinary. Ash was in residence at National Sawdust this past January and created an incredible, incredible work. I think um, we have a guest, yeah? Yeah, so I first encountered our first guest, Marina Gorbis, before I started working at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco. So before I was interviewing, or as I was interviewing for the position, which was um, as the kind of director of performing arts there, uh, YBCA was setting up a visual arts exhibition curated by uh, the incredible Betty Sue Hertz. The exhibition was called Dissident Futures. And the prompt for collaboration or the, or the prompt that was supposed to kind of spur their idea of how I would handle collaboration was to think about how I would respond to a visual arts exhibition on the future through the lens of performing arts. And part of that engagement at YBCA led to Marina Gorbis and the Institute for the Future, mm. which is mm. um, probably the world's leading foresight education and futures um, organization. And what I'm loving about this interview that, that we're about to hear is that it, it, it sets terms, it defines terms which is really important, I think, because when we think about the future, it feels very amorphous and, you know, we could be floating out there, but she grounds us. And not only does she ground us in a kind of lexicon and terminology that feels very sound, but she also grounds us in a, a vision of how artists are located in the future. So let's, uh, let's check that out. It's exciting. Let's grab a listen. Lucky me, lucky us. Lucky me. I get to hang out with uh, my very good friend, Marina Gorbish. It's such a pleasure to be here with you on the Active Hope podcast. So I I'm wondering maybe if you could start by just telling us a little bit about the Institute for the Future. Sure. The Institute is a nonprofit organization. We are located in Palo Alto, but we have people in different parts of the country, and we work with people from all around the world. Our mission, I think, to put simply, is to disrupt short-termism. We think that short-termism is one of the existential threats to humanity, and if we need needed proof of that, what we've just experienced and continue to experience is a direct result of short-termism because, you know, as much as we talk about these unpredictable events, this particular event, the pandemic, mm -hmm. was very, very predictable. Mm -hmm. The knowledge is out there. You know, the Institute basically did a game called Superstruct in which one of the scenarios, we called it ARS, Acute Respiratory Syndrome, uh, and it's very much what SARS and what we experience today. And so we were not the only ones. A lot of people were thinking about the possibilities and likelihood of something like this happening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there are very few incentives for people to actually change their behaviors mm -hmm. and do things to prepare for this. So this is one of those things that very much proves the value of what the Institute does, which is help people really imagine different possibilities for the future and also help people prepare for these possibilities. Mm. Um, and so to really practice long-termism rather than short-termism. Um, I, I imagine that there are any number on a daily basis, just pieces of vocabulary that you introduce 
to uh, your counterparts in dialogue that kind of help to refocus how people think about um, the future period. And, and um, one of the things that I remember is you talking about um, a utopian, a dystopic, and a, can you can you just talk maybe a little bit about how you define variations in um, in in futures or in future perspectives? Yeah, there are many different approaches to thinking about the future. You know, scenarios is one of the methodologies we use, mm-hmm. and particular methodology we use is called alternative futures methodology. Okay. That actually comes from um, Dr. Data, who was who is a futurist. And, and was teaching at Hawaii University of Hawaii at Manoa, and he uh, posited, and we believe in that. That you know, uh, when you think about all these visions of the future, there are four sort of archetypal ways in which we think about the future and construct scenarios in our minds. Mm-hmm. One is what we call growth, which is basically continuation of things as they've always been. It doesn't necessarily mean growth, but it means like we're going to continue on the same path. And that's the easiest thing to envision. It's what we all think about, you know, every day that things will pretty much continue Mm -hmm. as they've been. Mm -hmm. The other sort of archetypal scenario is collapse. So something is really falling apart. Something is breaking. Mm -hmm. It could be a system or a subsystem. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about climate collapse and things like that. So interesting enough, a lot of people love envisioning collapse Mm -hmm. (laughs) because things are complex. Mm -hmm. We live in a very complex world Mm -hmm. and it's hard to change. So why don't we just start anew? We just destroy what's there and build something new. Uh, The other one is constraint. So you're operating under the environment of some form of constraint. So now we're talking about resource constraint, like water shortages Mm -hmm. and things like that, where you need to constrain your behaviors. There's a limitation. And, And my favorite one, and really the one that's the hardest for people to think about is transformation where we're really moving into something very, very different. We're not destroying it, but we're transforming into something new. And and that's the hardest one for people to envision, mostly because when people think about the future, what's difficult about it is that they base it on their own personal experience. Mm -hmm. And let's take a lifespan, you know, at most 100 years about, right? Mm -hmm. And so we kind of come to believe that everything that we do and how we behave and how things work is kind of, that's the only way to be in the world, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's almost like preordained. It's, this is what it is. You know, we go to work from nine to five, we take vacations for a month, you know, we do this, the school call is followed by maybe college, by work and all of these things. So we, we think in these sets that are very sort of deterministic in some way. And when you think about transformation, you really have to put yourself into some very other space. Mm-hmm. And that's why artists are so important. I always say that artists are futurists, yes. just inherently futurists, because artists are able to envision something that we have not experienced that may not exist, or they have to reformulate it in a very substantial way. It's a little more ethereal, and maybe that's another kind of point of separation. That um, because what you're talking about in terms of a transformative future 
feels like um, the result of an ontological exercise, like a, um, a, a transformation of the psyche. Um, how, exactly. how much do you think or how much do you talk about um, the kind of psychology of the future, um, something that's more humanitarian? Um, how do you, you know, what, what are the elements that you play with in thinking about a psychology of a, transform, a transformational future? And what do you think we need in the present moment in order to um, uh, create enough critical mass that we might be positioned towards a transformational future? Yeah, you you brought us something, you're bringing up something really interesting, which is that we believe that the future does begin in the imagination, mm -hmm. right? Like, before you can build it, you need to be able to imagine it, mm -hmm. right? And one of the, there is a transformative element to future thinking, mm -hmm. because you are ultimately kind of putting doubt into what's here and how we came to that. But ultimately, it is about imagining alternative possibilities. I mentioned Bill Dater, the professor in Hawaii, and we have this um, logo on uh, or words or sentence on, on the windows if you come to the Institute that any credible statement about the future should appear to be ridiculous at first. <laughs> and we uh -huh. truly believe that. Like, if you think about a lot of things in where what we're living today mm. probably looked pretty ridiculous, mm. you know, even maybe 10 years ago, definitely 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. allowing yourself to imagine really all different possibilities is is where the future starts. Mm -hmm. Those are the seeds allowing people to to participate in that exercise and imagine something very, very different. And the other thing is that, you know, there's these official futures, right? Who Who is allowed to participate in the conversation mm -hmm. around about the future? If you think about a lot of companies, a lot of business organizations, they've been using this technique. You know, they use it when they do strategy work and others. But how many people are not part of this conversation about mm -hmm. what the future should be? Mm -hmm. You know, if you go to Silicon Valley, where I am located, you know, you're regaled about future visions everywhere. You go to every startup and they're changing the world. You know, they feel like they own and they're building the future, mm -hmm. right? And then we have vast groups in, in the population, obviously, who don't believe, they believe that they don't have this kind of agency, that the future is something that happens, it's done to them. Yes. You know, when you see these driverless cars driving around all around Palo Alto, right? Like you feel like you're in the future. Mm. It's like you are a participant. But a lot of people don't have that feeling. They feel like the future, they're victims of the future. Mm. So a big kind of part of this exercise, a big reason why future thinking is so important and it's important to, for a lot of people to engage in this conversation is because it is transformative. There's something that happens in how you think when you're allowed and you're invited to imagine 
these different futures, when you're a participant, mm -hmm. when you have some say in it. And so you become less of a victim of it and you feel, you start feeling like you have agency mm -hmm. to shape a desirable future or the kind of future that you want to live in, not the future that's brought to you by Silicon Valley. I want to read back to you something that you said along those lines, okay. if that's okay, <laughs> and just ask you to react. You say, to paraphrase Margaret Mead, we are all immigrants to the future. None of us is a native um, in that land. The very underpinnings of our society and institutions from how we work to how we create value, govern, trade, learn, and innovate are being profoundly reshaped. You talk about um, that sense of exploration and how it works with, uh, with how you run uh, the Institute for the Future. Yeah, and it kind of comes from, I'm an immigrant, you know, mm -hmm. I came here actually as a refugee a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's a really good place, um, this kind of otherness. I always felt that it's it's actually my superpower. Yes. A friend of mine, like, once told me, you're just like Pippi Longstocking. Whatever we talk about, you come in and say, but in this place uh -huh. and on this island, uh -huh. it looks differently, uh -huh. you know. But if you look at it here, people are not thinking that. And this sense of like that there are many different ways of looking at the world. You know, there are a lot of things that the immigrants do when you come to a new land, right? You do have to new, you have to watch for signals. You have yes. to learn a new culture, a new way of being. You know, I think the most important thing that we need to do is not to put easy and early judgments on things. There are a lot of things that evolve. You know, we have trouble dealing with emergent phenomena, mm -hmm. phenomena that kind of like changes as we influence it. Mm -hmm. And the future is kind of like that. You you kind of, you have to imagine new possibilities and then you have to go back and think about how do I navigate towards those possibilities? And also, you know, the future is not like a one point destination. Right. Every time we come as, with up with a solution you're like we live in the remedial world and mm. as humans we are constantly remediating ourselves mm. and our cultures and our environments so i think it's really important to think about as, as a continuous process it's like whatever you know solution we come up with is probably not perfect yes. so you don't want to be stuck in that solution you want to be constantly kind of looking at it, analyzing it. I'm not saying like you constantly have to analyze and not move on anything, but you have to be looking at these feedback loops mm -hmm. and where there are negative feedback loops that are appearing and try to remedy them. So it's not like a one point destination. It's something we have to be engaging in all the time. Um, I, have, I have one final kind of tongue in cheek question for you, and mm -hmm. you've actually already answered it, but I'm going to ask anyway. Uh, given your expertise, given your um, your pedigree, your knowledge base, your understanding, what are three things about the future that you know for sure? Okay, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try to come up with three. Well, I know that night will follow day mm. and that the sun will rise mm. after the night. Mm -hmm. I know that's... Spring will follow winter. Mm -hmm. 
you know, these are patterns that we've examined and experienced. They're like that. Those are certainties yeah. in the world. That, that, but that's about, you know, I know there's 365 days in a year. Mm -hmm. I know that Earth revolves around the sun. You know, all these things that are just so deeply like mm -hmm. they are the foundation mm -hmm. of our knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so those are kind of the certainties that repeatable, you know, it's it's something that we can be sure about. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, even within that, what what is the spring going to look like? Yeah, right. You know, that's something we need to shape. It really does speak to um, the role of artists or just creative people, yeah. doesn't it? I, I wanted to tell you this that I've been advocating, and I, I think it's we we need to conceive of art as essential work. Yes, you know, and just like we think of care and infrastructure as mm -hmm. part of infrastructure, as a social infrastructure, mm -hmm. I really think that we need to change that narrative and make art into essential infra social infrastructure yes. and into essential work. Yes, yes especially if we plan on being here in the long term. I, I, have, I have no idea uh, what the weather systems were like in the 1600s, <laughs> the 1700s, but I, I, I know Mozart. I, I, you know, I yeah. know Michelangelo. I, I have, I have yeah, we know it at a personal level. That's yeah. how we're surviving, right? Yeah. Even through this, it's like we're all doing something creative, some yes. art, yes. whether, but... We fail to recognize it on a on a kind of societal level. Mm -hmm. Well, here's here's hoping you're right. Here's 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 to more art. Here's and to artists. Here's to um, a future by decree of my good friend Marina. I really appreciate you. I really <laughs> appreciate you. your time. Thank you Thank so you, much. Mark. I needed to hear that today. Wow. That was incredible. Mm. Mm. So many gems. So many gems. How empowering was that conversation? Just the idea of imagining a future and the fact that those who do it best, we live in that world, right, of imagination. You have to think big and broad in order to build the system. I mean, there, there was uh, that uh, that really empowered um, that yeah. art as essential work. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I just... And that the only um, thing we yeah, know for certain so much to think about. are these things that often we overlook, you know, mm. that if you give a seed mm. water, it will grow, you know, mm -hmm. that the sun will rise. That's I right. Mean, those are yeah. profound yeah. things that give us yeah. all these rhythms of life. But where it takes me to is really, um, you know, to our field, because I think right now we are in a place of reimagining. And I mm. think that there's so much to learn from what she mm. said, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, you're absolutely right on that. And, and yet, and still something that I'm sitting with, especially as we talk about designing the future within our institutions, what really struck me, what she said was this, this mm. concept of victims yeah. of mm. the future. Right. Um, and, and, and the privilege that sits within mm -hmm. this idea of long-termism, mm -hmm. right. Taking it even to even our institutions, but there are a very few who who have that financial and economic privilege to think outside yep. beyond three years, five years, ten years, fifteen years. So there's always something. So that really hit me of 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 where that chasm mm -hmm. sits to dream right. bigger than tomorrow, than next week, than next month. 
um, but how necessary and vital it is to our survival to go beyond, you know, that that right. short termism chasm. How do we fill that gap? Yeah, there, 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 there's there's some people there. There are some characters within me that I would not be very proud to um, take out or show out if put up against the wall. Mm-hmm. Like if you put my back up against the wall. There, there there are certain beings that live inside my body that would emerge that you probably don't want to see like just on a casual Sunday. That's short-termism. Mm-hmm. That's that kind of urgency. And we apply that to economics. We apply that to organizational planning, et cetera. But the notion of an official future or, you know, uh, these kind of concurrent sets of official futures. Camila, what you're talking about, the the passivity, the victimhood, you know, folks believing that they are victims of a preordained, um, you know, externally authored future. This is how I think most of us think and function. And there's a certain level of safety in that. But the the premise that dreaming is part of the democratic enterprise, that mm. actually in order to sit safely and securely within, um, within a democracy, not only do you have to be able to sustain yourself on a financial level, but you also have to be able to dream something right. other than what, you know, than what you were given. Otherwise, you know, that victimhood, that passivity, it overcomes yep. us. And that's really when authoritarianism uh, takes hold, which is where the artist comes in, in terms of hacking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's right. If you think about it, it's also like to put it in the crassest way possible. It's about use. Mm-hmm. People don't see use for people. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem, mm-hmm. right? They don't have mm-hmm. the imagination to see that mm-hmm. you can take an 80-year-old or 90-year-old worker. I mean, there are ways to combat this sense of, you know, victimhood, but it takes mm-hmm. imagination and it takes also understanding you know, what you can gain from different mm. realities. And and that's the thing I think about our field right now is that everybody needs each yes. other. Like we're not going to make mm. it out of this without it. We're mm. not going to make it without the legacy institutions. We're not going to make it without the people who mm. have left the field because they can't survive mm-hmm. it. We need them too, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but it takes that mm-hmm. kind of radical reimagining to say, not use because that's the wrong word, but but meaning. How do you find meaning in different, you know, in in, in different realities? And how do you position mm. yourself in the present moment mm. as a vehicle for the mm. future? Yeah. She talked about four yeah. different kinds. She said yeah. she talked about scenarios as a way of looking at the future. And she talked about growth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We will mm-hmm. we will emanate from this point and expand. She talked about collapse. Mm which she said is kind of the most popular. Mm-hmm. We will emanate from this point and everything mm-hmm. will fall apart. She talked about constraint mm-hmm. and constraint is the mm-hmm. nonprofit paradigm. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Yes. Like we're going to we're going to move forward, but there'll be less there'll there'll be less then yeah. than there is now. And yeah. then she talked about transformation. Sure. And the funny thing about arts organizations yeah. is we work with transformational beings with a yeah. constraint mindset. Mm-hmm. So, so yes. how do we yes. how do we yes. flip the the mindset so that we are both thinking about ourselves as transformational agents and also thinking mm-hmm. um, 
thinking in terms of a, a transformational psychology in terms yeah. of how we, uh, what we invest in, Completely. how we program, where we situate ourselves Completely. in the public imagination and in the body politic. Completely. I completely agree. I, I always I always think, you know, we ask artists to take so huge mm -hmm. risk, but where are we institutions taking the same, right. where are we risk taking mm -hmm. um, for the future? Where are we being bold? Where are we being imaginative? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and we, we take on sort of, I, I love, you know, even the notion mm -hmm. of collapse that she brought up, right? Where are we willing to collapse right. what we know in order for transformation to take place? Um, and, you know, it's a scary thing, but at the same time, it's quite exciting. Well, and it's interesting. You need to, you need to be comfortable with risk, mm -hmm. right? Which inherently yeah. you are as an artist comfortable with risk, but yep. you know, how do you bring that risk when you have stakeholders that may not understand, um, you know, that that risk can actually lead to transformation. So I'd like to play a clip by composer, performer, and media artist, Pamela Z. Pamela gave a live demonstration of her work with electronic processing, samples, and gesture-activated MIDI controllers in a live stream masterclass at National Sawdust. Let's hear it. Pamela Z. It's beautiful. You know, uh, going back to the Marina Gorbis interview, she talked about um, transformational um, futures. She talked about official futures, and she situated herself in Silicon Valley. And essentially, that the, the authorship of the future, the authorship of these official futures, was being held by technological companies whose machinery dictates to us um, what's coming right. next. Um, but artists through music, through sound, through, um, mm. projection, through mm. fashion, they give us, a, artists give mm. us a sense of, um, what is emerging. And in that case, the Apollo theater is a future mm. lab. Um, it's mm. a place of, of history and legacy mm. and lineage, but it's a future. Lab. National Sawdust is a future lab, and that also is just mm. a different kind mm. of positioning. Do we want to mm. um, be the kinds of places that tell mm. you exactly what is the mm. now? Mm. Or mm. can we expect and court audiences and a, and a broader public that's very much interested in what might be? I love be? that. Because the what mm. might be is... Mm sorely lacking in our public discourse. Yeah. Today, um, my good friend sent me this article yeah. um, and it was it was really painful to read. It was an article in Harper's and it was painful mm. because it's actually the reality of mm. all of us artists and all of our friends who are artists. And it's talking about really the kind of big tech mm. companies and mm. how 
in order to kind of mm. ever be able to dignify an artistic existence with with you know financials we actually really need to kind of break up the big tech right and that fundamentally mm. If that's not done, and if, you know, if we don't kind of adopt different measures, kind of what she was saying about, you know, really integrating art into the fabric of life. Like if you take Ireland, right, the first $50,000 of, of, of income that an artist makes is not taxable. I mean, mm. can you imagine that? Like what mm. would happen if we begin to rethink wow. the economy wow. of how artists are supposed to survive? But it's also valuing, you know, there's, God, Paula, what you said, that's that's so brilliant, right? In, in where we see value of artists' contribution in other countries. Um, and Bamuti, you, you, you said this interesting, right? Like I didn't know the weather patterns in 1600s, oh, but I knew yeah. Mozart, right? I knew those folks, like, right? So I, that's mm. my that was my way in. So if we're putting value in the future, we have to put value yes. in artists. Yeah. Marina says you can't, um, that the future starts in the yeah. imagination. And I'm, I'm curious for you two, actually, mm. and this idea that any credible projection of the future should, should be ridiculous, should first appear to be ridiculous. What did you all see? when you were younger, that was utterly ridiculous, that made you believe that you could make the future? Hmm. I, I, I think about the moment where making things mm -hmm. was one of my earliest memories in a theater. Yeah. And um, remembering the lights going down yeah. and that feeling of just expansiveness in the dark. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden the lights and the music started on the stage. Mm -hmm. And I remember the feeling I had, the feeling that magic is being created in this world. Mm -hmm. um, um, that I, my body starting to levitate out of my chair, right? I'm leaning forward to, to understand what is the magic that's being created in this black box that keeps me riveted at the edge of my seat for the next two hours. And I remember that feeling and that feeling wanting to propel me to continue to make that feeling again, yeah. to continue to make something, to continue to fill the void, mm. fill the black box. And that's not necessarily always for right. art, right? Um, um, I, although it, I, I, clearly I'm an artist, I'm an art administrator, yeah, clearly it is, but I think it was always that feeling to move bodies, um, myself and others, in that same way that I was moved um, in that black box. That's mm. what I remember. Mm. I, you know, I guess for me, it was always two things. It was one, which was just the power of song.
You know, it was something I grew up with. It was hearing songs in my house and being able to, you know, I don't know, to to feel better because of a song or to be, feel connected or to overcome pain because of a song. Um, and then, quite frankly, it's actually exactly what you said, Bamuti, but it's been reaffirmed throughout all chapters of my life, whether I'm, you know, I was writing my music at, at 10 or 11 years old, um, and all the books in front of me had male composers. And I was like, it, it didn't dawn on me then. I didn't even think a woman could be a composer, but I was writing, you know, and then at Juilliard, I was there and the only woman I ever studied was this, was Hildegard von Bingen. She was the only woman in all of my history books, right? Like that couldn't be true. It couldn't be that women didn't compose, you know, and then further down the line, like creating a space where people actually helped each other. It couldn't be true that people really didn't want to help each other, right? So it's always been that. It's been, there has to be something um, better than what is around, which I guess mm -hmm. is a form of defiance and maybe, you know, I don't know. Well, that's the word. I, I was going to use the word audacity. It does take a little mm. bit of audaciousness, mm. but it's also kind of matter of fact. That question, mm. this can't be true. This, this can't, can't be, be it. it. Yeah. Be yeah. I mean, my one of my transitional points in organizational design and beginning to work in leadership at an arts organization is I have made culture with mm -hmm. nothing. I, you know, we make culture on the yeah. block. Literally, we make culture in, you know, my boy uh, Tariq's room. You know, there's, I, I, I've heard, Paula, maybe this is, this is you, but, you know, those composers that don't have any instruments at their disposal and they're on a plane <laughs> and they just, and you know, they make an entire comp, like we can yeah. make with nothing. Mm. So if you have organizational resource mm. and you have mm. organizational positionality, mm. then you can go ahead and make an organizational mm. future that mm. is in mm. defiance. Mm. That audaciously moves against the way that, um, you know, by by creed or you know, kind of a, a original opening mm. or, or or original mandate can actually do mm. something different, mm. do something other than what it was originally intended to do, and, and and maybe our organizations, organizations like ours, were originally intended to give Camila that, give people that yeah. moment of of magic and you know here's a, here's a box where we can all be in magic together mm. um but maybe also here's to taking all that magic that happens mm. together in a box and yeah. using it yeah <laughs> and using it in a very specific way facts. oriented <laughs> towards a future that actually yeah. is an improvement upon is uh, is part of the transformational future that the music that we're listening to mm. that the visuals that we're looking at that the words that we're hearing mm. you know they're mm. all indicating something now go mm. use that and it's the institution's responsibility to, I think, also direct the public imagination towards using the magic towards the future that we want. It's not enough to say right. we presented it. Now go do like whatever. Well, and then there's this further notion of like, you know, we've all been in these boxes, right? And we've been communicating. And I was talking to this um, this wonderful, incredible person at, at Sundance, and she was saying that it's like we've been a balloon mm. 
up in the sky and now we have to tether back down to the ground. And I thought that was such a great Mm. way to think of like what we're about to embark. We've been up in the sky Mm -hmm. trying to reimagine and now we've got to tether back, but that ladder is going to still be there. So in a way we've gained two worlds, which is really cool. Mm. It's going to be a lot more work. Mm. (laughs) Yes. When she was talking about seasons, I asked her, you know, what are three things you know yeah, to be true about the future? That. And she started talking about seasons. And I just thought of as mm-hmm. I just thought of Stevie Wonder, <laughs> you know, uh, un- until the sun, until the earth just for the sun denies itself. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. she talked about all these seasonal things. But I went to the artist, the the, the great alien Stevie Wonder, who talks about love as um, a kind of obliteration of seasonal norms and seasonal mm-hmm. patterns. And that kind of inception is something that an artist can do. An artist can say, here's this thing that you know, and here's this thing that you believe, but what if, you, you know, what if four, eight times eight times eight was four? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just upend everything that you think is logical and locate yourself in in a in a different place that you can relate to because that's how long I'll be loving you. Mm-hmm. It's poetic, it's disruptive, um, but it's all, but it it forces you to imagine um, something out of the box, and that's something that maybe engineers do and um, and maybe gets located in government, but really is the purview of music. I'd like to thank our featured guest, Marina Gorbis. Today, you heard music performed and composed by Ash Kusha, Pamela Z, and you heard Rosa by Du Ian, which is part of the work Sweetland produced by the industry. Please tune in to the second part of Futurism with special guests, Brenda Shaughnessy and Tim Fielder. Our producer is Sapir Rosenblatt. And on behalf of my co-hosts, Paola Prestini and Mark Bamuti-Joseph, I'm Camila Forbes, and this is Act of Hope. Thank you for listening.